Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and we might be joined by our co-host, Tori Ashley Matos, a little later in the program. But for now, um, our guest is Holly Cinnamon. Uh, Holly is an actor, singer, yoga instructor, and Alexandra Technique teacher, currently based in New York City. Um, Holly has taught workshops on Alexandra Technique in Japan, Ireland, New York, Boston, Toronto, and Edmonton. She is the proud teaching member of Alexandra Technique International, and she serves on the Professional Development Committee of that organization. Her article about the Alexandra Technique and 3D vision, entitled The Disappearance of the Third Dimension, was featured in The Exchange, um, ATI's professional journal. Acting credits include Julie Barnes in season three of Marvel's Daredevil, currently streaming on Netflix, Off-Broadway Dear Jane, Edmonton, uh, A Christmas Carol, Backwater, Perfect Pie, uh, Regional, Anne Shirley and Anne and, and Gilbert, uh, PEI. Uh, Holly has taught uh, Alexander Technique to actors at the Barrow Group Theater and the AT Motion Center for actors in NYC with Belinda Mello. She currently offers private lessons and teaching groups, workshops, and performers for performers online. Welcome, Holly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, thank you. So, um, let me just increase the volume here. Okay, cool. Um, so now, why don't we start the conversation off a little bit with about Alexander Technique, and tell us a little bit about kind of how that distinguished itself as an acting technique and how what, what, what you teach or how you teach actors to use this technique. We had actually had uh, an actor uh, several, like earlier on in the show who did Meisner technique. So it'll be interesting hmm. to compare a little bit of different techniques to listeners to hear different techniques in acting. Thank you. Well, um, Alexander technique isn't necessarily an acting technique per se. Um, essentially, it's a movement mo modality, and some people use it for healing. A lot of people come to it for healing when they have an injury or um, long-term chronic pain. So um, what separates it from other movement modalities like Feldenkrais technique or yoga or Pilates, which I also teach yoga, um, is that it's directly applied to your daily activities. So essentially, I help people in their daily movement patterns, their habits of thinking, their habits of moving through the world, their habits of how they conceive of their bodies, how they conceive of their anatomy, how they conceive of their movement pattern, um, which deeply interweaves both your thinking patterns, your physical patterns of movement in the world, your identity. So it's a very holistic approach to looking at um, how your body and your thinking interact in your daily life. And then when you want to make changes to a pattern or change the way that you operate in the world, how, how can you do that when you're operating from inside of an existing pattern of being? So what's really, what, what I find very exciting about Alexander Technique and um, what separates it from a lot of other ways of teaching is that it's really looking at how you're already operating and working with how you're already operating as a system and how to change that system from within. Mm. And so what I, when I apply it to actors, essentially I mostly coach people doing auditions um, on a tool that I call orienting, 
um, which is from Alexander Technique. And I also gleaned a lot of it from Betsy Politan's trauma training, um, which combines Alexander Technique with somatic experiencing work. And essentially that is orienting in space, knowing where you are, what you're in relationship to, what's around you, finding yourself in relationship to the world around you. And this is something that animals do in the savannah, in the wild. Um, my cat does it all the time when she jumps down off of a piece of, off of some furniture onto the floor and she just assesses where she is. But because of the rise of technology in our culture and how much we're interacting with our screens, this natural tool and natural ability is starting to get shut down in a lot of us. We're focusing on our iPhones as we're walking down the street or on the subway platform. So we're not really orienting to our surroundings. And this can be really dangerous for our nervous systems because our nervous systems require us to know where we are and what we're in relationship to in order to self-regulate, in order to keep us feeling safe. So essentially I teach natural things, natural things that we already would do um, back to humans who have maybe over the course of their lives lost those natural inclinations due to often the influence of technology um, to know exactly how to be present, exactly how to be, and not just to say, okay, let's be more present. Presence is a good thing, come into the present, but how, how, how can I practice that? Not just on my yoga mat or in meditation, but in my everyday life. Um, so we look at what are resources in your atmosphere that you can be in relationship with and how does being in relationship to the wall versus the floor versus the air versus the sky versus a small object or some sounds, how does that change how I feel about myself and myself in my body, depending on what I relate to? So I, I use that tool with actors. I use that tool with musicians. I use that tool with, with anyone. I, I've worked with someone who worked for the New York Times, um, sitting at her desk all day. And uh, how, how can she maintain a greater awareness of herself while she's at her desk all day? How can she set up her office space to be more present? So that's okay. what I do. <clears throat> so it seems like um, being in the body and being aware of the body and being aware of how we interact with our environment seems to be very essential for all people, not just actors, but um, you know, all people to, to, to feel empowered and to relate with each other, would you say? And uh, that's your teaching actors specifically, so then they can kind of take that jump from where they are and be to the character's perspective, would you say? Was that a good summary of what you were saying or how, yeah. how, I, how I interpreted it? Yeah, essentially, um, this tool is useful for anyone. Anyone... Um, to come back to themselves, to feel safe in themselves and to really arrive where you are right now in your body in this moment. And not just by going in, but also knowing how to be in relationship to the world around us. And that's also the root of empathy and the root of true relational being um, because we're not fixed structures. Mm. So when you talk about the physics of acting or the physics of movement or the physics of the human body 
it's not a fixed structure. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly, we're constantly in relationship to each other, in relationship to our surroundings. So how do we maintain a sense of balance and a sense of empowerment and boundaries in that relationship and also be free to take in and, and give out and interact with the world? Um, so the, that tools is useful to everyone. Actors just do it in front of people and we watch them do it. We watch them do everyday activities yeah. um, in front of us in order for us to highlight certain things about human behavior or about our culture or about um, who we are or what we believe in or, um, or have empathy for people who have different experiences than us, but see ourselves in each other. And in order for us to be able to see ourselves in each other through the acting process, we need to be available to be seen at that level um, and to be in relationship to our audience, whether the audience is physically in the theater, which currently, sadly, is shut down for in most places of the world, um, or that audience is, is through a screen the same relationship is happening, the same give and take. So how do you as an actor find that if you're just facing a camera? How do you find that in relationship to the other actors? How do you find that in relationship to your space? Yeah, we were discussing a little bit about how the screens are affecting our embodiment. And uh, in what way do you think it's detrimental? Is there any kind of advantages to this kind of thing? Or is there any positive or pros to the digitalization of the body and and our interactions or is it or we you know we kind of often hear they're kind of alienating and such but is there anything positive about it or are we, are we focused on how we can kind of adjust ourselves towards this new environment so that then we can then kind of reclaim a little bit of our our embodiment i think both both sides are true, which is true of most big questions like yeah. that. Um, I definitely, I think, would I take back the advances of technology? It allows us to communicate with anyone around the world. It, it allows us to communicate about this pandemic. It allows us to um, see what's going on and to connect um, 24 hours a day. It allows us to operate 24 hours a day. Um, it allows things to happen in the background while we're not no longer present, um, which is very efficient and means we can focus our energy and attention on other things as a human species, other than just, um, you know, lighting, <laughs> well, other than just working the six or eight hours a day that we have enough light and, um, and being very limited by who we can interact with spatially. Essentially, technology is allowing us to, to change our species' interaction with time and space. Mm. And how we interact with time and space is an essential part of life. And it deeply affects us. It deeply affects how we feel every day, how in tune we are with the, the movement of the world, with each other. And we are able to transcend those those barriers of sunrise and sunset and also distance. Um, so we have this, this crazy kind of power to transcend the physics of the world as it was built 
before we arrived. So I think, I suppose that quote, and I don't know who, who said this, but that quote about with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> applies in this situation. Um, and I would say actually with great power come, I, I guess comes the responsibility of awareness of um, how is this affecting me? How do I still have boundaries um, in terms of my time and space, despite the availability of everything? How much do I want to engage with my technology, with the world, when it's at my fingertips 24 seven? And how do I choose when to disengage and or when to simply observe or when to interact? Um, and how do I keep myself here in the center of myself, here over my feet, here in the center of my body? Because those cues that our nervous systems are giving us all the time are telling us how we feel about things, are telling us whether or not the reality around us, whether or not the news, whether or not a certain conversation or something we witness aligns or misaligns with our values. And so if we start getting so involved in our technology in terms of where our identity is, if it's a digital identity, if it's in the screen, if, you're, if your life is in your Google calendar and your self image is in your Instagram profile um, and your work is in your Google document and your email and your Google drive, if everything that you consider your life is somehow inside of your machine and no longer inside of your body, then we start to lose touch with those, those instincts, those values, how, how our feelings communicate to us in an embodied way. So I think um, it's important that the self, that the center of the self really remains inside of the body. And that is a really key value. And that's essentially what I'm teaching is how to bring that back. Um, because increasingly with technology, we're fracturing where we locate ourselves. We're locating ourselves more in our screens. We're locating ourselves more in our profiles. And right now, um, because we're largely self-isolating, that's sometimes our only interaction with other human beings. So that becomes our interactive identity. Um, so it's just important for us to be aware of what that does in terms of how we conceive of ourselves and um, having choice around how much do I lean into that and when do I choose to lean into that and when do I choose to retreat and how can I be with my screen, be in an interaction even right now with you through my screen, but stay with myself where I am in the room and keep listening to myself here, here in my own body. Thank you, thank you. So one of the questions we were asking was like, and this kind of dovetails off of this, um, what essential truth do you believe you see is undervalued in society? So what are the things that we're not catching up on, we're picking up on as a general group uh, or society um, that you think is very important for us to, and we've been kind of picking on some of these truths, but is there anything essential that you think that we're missing? Well, um, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. Um, I'm sure many you and many of your listeners have heard of her and her work. Um, uh, I think she calls herself a researcher storyteller, but I've been listening to her, her books on Audible 
Um, again, I've read, I've read a couple of them and I'm, I've been really thinking about vulnerability and shame and the emotional work that she talks about around our fear of being ourselves, our fear of being vulnerable, our fear of being wrong, our fear of making mistakes and being judged. Um, and how that relates to what I just talked about, about embodiment and technology and how the fracturing of ourselves through social media and through technology gives us kind of a buffer zone, an imaginary buffer zone between ourselves and other people. So we can maybe be more aggressive or say something we might not say if we had to feel the other person in front of us in person. Um, or we can run away and protect ourselves. We can post something and then not care um, and be you know, too cool for it, um, for how people respond. And because it's all happening in this digital medium, a lot of our interactions are happening in this digital medium. We have this ability to distance ourselves from how we really feel. And while that might appear on first glance like a very useful self-protective uh, ability i think in the long term it just does us a lot of harm and that's really what we have to mitigate when we're understanding how we're working with technology um which is that that distance is only a distance of us ourselves really cutting ourselves off from how we truly feel cutting ourselves off from from that embodied listening that I teach. Because if, if um, I were to walk out in public and people were to comment on my face like they might on an Instagram post, I for sure would have, and they would have to witness um, my emotional response, my embodied response, um, how it felt to interact with another human face to face that way. And not just face to face, but body to body. Um, and that might sound that might sound strange to say, but um, and probably that's to do with a lot of uh, fear that we have around embodiment and bodies being so commodified and sexualized in our culture that even to say I interact with a stranger on a body to body level on the street, we might not touch. There's nothing um, there's nothing sexual about that relationship, but empathetically we interact from head to toe when we're standing across from each other so i not only see their reaction in their face i feel it i can feel if their heartbeat changes pace from something i said i can feel if they have a fight flight freeze response i can feel whether or not i have the capacity to intellectually analyze and, and name it i can feel it on some level but when we're through our screens we have the ability to avoid that, to avoid feeling the consequences of our actions, being present with how our actions on the world are actually shaping the world. And it's a way we can evade responsibility um, and talk about global problems and situations that we're at a distance from as though we don't have an impact on them. Um, and it's a way we can armor ourselves emotionally and pretend we don't care or we don't feel um, when we feel vulnerable. 
Um, and it's a way we can let each other off the hook for maybe doing or saying things that do hurt us. But if we are in a culture that's encouraging us to be proud and to be too cool for it, um, then we're not going to acknowledge that face to face. And it's just a, a vicious cycle. So I really uh, am a strong, I, I love Brene Brown's work. I'm a strong proponent of vulnerability and um, not just on an emotional level, which from the Alexander perspective doesn't exist. There's no separate emotional level and physical level and mental level. That's an arbitrary division that some psychologist created um, or, or religion really created a kind of hierarchy of being that allowed us to suppress our bodies and suppress the instincts and the reactions of our bodies. And then that became sexualized. And now is in our secular culture, the body is both a, an object that's performed and an identity that's performed. And also kind of it's information and instincts is really pushed away. Um, so what I really value and teach is how do we come back to ourselves, whether we're interacting in person or through a screen and experience our values in an embodied way. And this kind of, I was actually listening to, um, daring greatly late last night and at the very, and near the end of the book, Brene Brown talks about the gap, minding the gap. Um, and she talks about the gap between our stated values or our, our desired values and our lived values. Mm. And I really feel like the way that we can close that gap is to become more embodied because that's where we really feel our values. That's where we feel our internal emotional compasses telling us this feels right. This feels wrong. This is what I want. This is how I want to respond. Not so that we're always in reaction because our emotions, you know, they tell us how we feel very strongly. Um, I'm not advising that you simply follow through on any reaction that you feel, but being able to be with that reaction and say, you know, um, when you said that to me, I really wanted to run away or I really like wanted to hit you. Um, and I'm not going to hit you. And maybe I ran away for a bit and then came back and decided to have a conversation. But, um, but knowing, being with that, being able to be with that is the first step to being able to be honest with each other and to heal. And I think that's what, what we're facing right now on a global scale. Um, and it's kind of appropriate that we're being forced to also self-isolate because I think the work we're being asked to do on a global scale right now is really self-examination um and what better time to do it than when you can't be distracted by your usual distractions and you have to be with yourself and i've been watching some great some great um comedy videos about people uh sketches of of comedians that are stuck at home that are doing really interesting um sketches of themselves in relationship to themselves and all the levels of self that are starting to come out when they're in self-isolation so thank you thank you so why don't we lead up to some of your work um your writing work i know you brought some poems to read as well as some songs 
uh, why don't we start to prep for that and the halfway point we'll uh, listen to a song or listen to a poem we'll leave it up to you we'll do both but for now we'll start off why don't we start off with the poem and tell us a little bit about what are some of the themes that you explore in your poetry and then we'll listen to a song okay, okay. Um, well, this is a poem, I'm going to read you a poem called Ode to Artists. Um, I wrote this, it's pretty connected. You'll notice a lot of what I talk about in my embodiment work really is the root of my voice as a writer, um, as a woman, as a feminist. Um, my work a lot of the times is finding words for my own embodied experience and finding ways to, to capture that outside of myself. And I think a lot of writers, um, a lot of poets and songwriters especially find this such a useful tool to, to be able to, to capture something. I think all artists are doing this to try to capture something in some medium that's, that they feel that is already inside of them and they need to find a medium to capture it in so that they can actually see it um, at a distance and look at it in relationship and not be consumed by whatever that experience is or caught inside of it, but be able to look back at it from the outside. Um, so I wrote this, this piece when I, was, when I moved to New York. Um, I think around in the first year that I moved to New York. Um, and it's about artists and how we do this. So this is called Ode to Artists. Between sidewalk cracks like weeds, we find our space and silence. In junctions and alleyways, nooks, crooks and crannies hidden everywhere. Small places for artists to hide and thrive. New York City. We dive behind stone archways to write, record, catch, draw, leap before time overtakes us and we slip back into the rhythm of the subway with the rest. So many rhythms to feed us. We have to fight to find our own, to listen to the internal rhythm, the heartbeat, blood flow, breath and tummy rumble. Digest the noises and the fumes and convert to words on a page to create space for change. We are the underlings. We take the underground, anonymous. Capturing the spirit you forgot to feel. Noticing the faces you forgot to see. Witnessing. 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 In a culture which has forgotten to look up. Mind the gap. The space between us. We scribble in the margins, recentering the marginalized, lest we forget. As time is overtaken by construction workers, turning brick to steel to plastic to wireless connection, we rebel in our presence. We send secret messages, our code face-to-face, -face, easily overlooked by those hooked into Facebook, time displaced. We are desperate to save this race from its own power misplaced. Do you remember what a day spent buried in a book felt like? The smell of paper. Do you remember not knowing what time it was? The light through the window. Do you remember hearing your mind think? The sound of wonder. 
We do. We strive to. We sip real time at any chance and savor it. Desperate to salvage the relic of our humanity before we turn to plastic, we will remind you of your heartbeat when your idea of yourself is too loud for you to hear it. Between sidewalk cracks, like weeds, we survive, waiting to find our light so we can bring you back to life. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was interesting. It's very good. It really underlined the themes that you are talking about earlier in the episode, and it really was a great expression of that, and I really appreciated that piece. Um, so why don't we go on to talk a little bit about your music and how and how that you know you you write the songs I guess and write, you uh, compose them and you're creating it on ukulele. I believe you brought ukulele with you today. Yeah, uh, I, I play a few different instruments and I I have a, a couple of writers that I'm writing with now yeah. um, via Zoom, which is interesting um, to collaborate online from a distance. But yeah, I guess. My ukulele is portable. It's one of the first things I started playing um, back when I started writing music. And it's great. I can bring it camping with me. I can travel around with it. So okay. I, I have that with me here. Today. So I think you, you are going to do uh, a song, Little Boxes, I believe you're going to play. Yeah, uh, great. Tell us, it's actually based on another song. It's a parody song, right? Yeah, so some of you might recognize um, this is a parody or a rewrite of a Malvina Reynolds song from, I believe it came out originally in 1962. She wrote it. Uh, the story goes that she was traveling um, through the countryside, driving with her husband in California and, and seeing the new developments um, in the 1960s, post-World War II of uh, all the little houses on the hillside. Mm. Um, and she wrote this song called Little Boxes, which also was, I think, yeah, a few years ago or so, was the theme song to the show, the TV show Weeds. So you might recognize it from that. Um, and essentially she was talking about a culture which was becoming homogenous, um, a culture of conformity, a culture of of I think the American dream and and, per, and perfection seeking, like having a, a perfect family, like husband, wife, daughter, son, in their perfect little pink house next to the next perfect little blue house with the exact same family. Um, and about the, the constraints, the cultural constraints that, that were starting to become normalized that she was witnessing. So, uh, I'm a huge fan of, of her work and of this song. And um, one day I was looking at my iPhone and I was inspired to write a new version of her song um, applied to the 21st century. So here we go. Little boxes made of colored light, little boxes in my iPhone. 
home that I live my life inside. There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one. And I open up the boxes and I live my life inside. And the people in the boxes all send me a million messages so I can't avoid the boxes or they'll wonder if I've died. So I spend my day in boxes and I send back a million messages. Then I quickly close the boxes and I run away and hide. There's a pink box and a blue box where I show the world how cool I am. While they're all stuck in boxes, looking at my pretty life. Then I stumble on a stranger in a box a world away from mine. So I tell them what I think of them without ever saying hi. Find. But those boxes in the 60s were three-dimensional and human-sized. Now our boxes fit on fingertips and our bodies stay outside. interesting how you know you kind of makes you think about the different ways in which we interact with screens and you know in, in a kind of fun playful way yeah thank you so why don't we go to some of our pre-interview questions some of the things I asked you before um, so we're talking a little bit about this is the truth to power show on Radio Free Brooklyn um, we talked a little bit about how you know truth is power and truth is empowerment you know, we talked a little bit about how people have discovered their truth. And um, <clears throat> so in that sense, in what way does one specific truth or a truth you've discovered act as a way for, for your empowerment? Like we, we understand the basis of power to be truth and how does something that is true for you act as the way for your empowerment? Hmm. Um. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I've lived my whole life um, as a woman in this world, and I, I'm, a, I'm a cisgender woman, and I'm a queer woman. And for me, I think 
speaking to what I talked about earlier about vulnerability, um, I really think I, I read a really great quote and I'm not going to know who said it. Um, but uh, recently about queer people finding their voices earlier because it's forced upon us. Um, and it's, it's something I have to choose to reveal or not reveal. Unlike my experience of my gender as a cisgender woman, I have always experienced my gender almost since I, since I can remember, since I, I was a very little girl. I have known that I was a girl. I have known that I was a woman and I've known that that meant something in terms of my life. And I didn't always have a choice around it, around what it meant, um, what it meant to me, what it meant to other people, how it influenced my life, how it influenced my way of being in the world, how it influenced what I thought I should be, um, what other people thought I should be, what I thought I could do, what I, who I saw myself in. Um, and that's a really fascinating part for me is, is um, how our, our identity or our perceived identity, the labels that we we place on each other and on ourselves that define us start to define who we empathize with and who we're able to see ourselves in. Um, and I had to, I, I'm from a rural town and small town in the middle of Canada. And I live in New York now. And that journey um, was, was part of finding that for me, finding people who looked like me, who were like me, who I could see myself in, um, who I believed gave me an example of how I could be empowered. Um, and I do think even that statement is problematic because in an ideal world, we would see ourselves in everyone. Um, but in our culture, because of how our identities and the labels that we have are put on us so early and we come to identify with those or understand ourselves through that lens, I really needed to seek that out, um, to seek out female artists that I believed in, that I wanted to be like, whose work I admired, um, and to see what they were doing in the world and, and, how, and how they were conducting themselves professionally and how they were seeking out opportunities and how they were finding their voices and raising their voices. Um, my identity as a queer woman is very different because I am a queer femme and I uh, look very feminine. Um, most people, not that it comes up a lot, but when people do assume or, or do make a statement about um, me being in a relationship, there's, there's never once been an assumption that it was with a woman. So, um, so that is a, a coming out that I, I constantly have to do and will have to do for my whole life. Um, most likely, uh, unless I become, well, well, I will have to do it in, di in different, in different, uh, parts of my life for my whole life. So, um, so that's an act of courage and it takes a revealing of the self and it, and it takes choosing to be vulnerable. Um, and I, and I want to say that I realize that that also takes a privilege, um, a feeling of safety, an environment where that is safe. And that is a privilege, um, a culture where you believe that you'll be supported and not fired and 
not put in jail and um and not beaten or killed uh which still happens around the world even in um even in supposedly civilized cultures So that act of vulnerability, um, when we talk about coming out, we tend to talk about it through the lens of what the experience means for the person who's coming out, um, the fear around that. We tend to talk about coming out stories as, as stories of overcoming fear. Um, and I, I certainly think that that is part of the story. Um, and I watched this that documentary about um, that queer couple, the, that lesbian couple from Edmonton, a secret, a secret love, recently, and read some comments about how that narrative. And I actually really, really enjoyed that film. I thought it was very powerful and showed different perspectives. But I do see the the critique of it being very much about focused on the narrative of fear of coming out, which is a relevant narrative. But I also think that there's this other side of coming out, which is an ownership of power, an act of power, that when when you have to come out and it's your choice and there's a part of your identity that you can choose to reveal or not to reveal, you have this power in when and how you reveal it. And coming out is equally an act of empowerment. And the thing that is very rarely talked about when we talk about coming out is the impact that it has on those around us. Um, the stories are always so much so focused on the person who's coming out and their journey and their feelings about it. And sometimes around the fear of other people, but not the empowerment that that brings to everyone in the room. Because I really believe that when you can come out in whatever form, and right now I'm really coming out as a businesswoman and I'm coming out as Um, a teacher and I'm coming out in finding my voice in terms of my work, in terms of embodiment, in terms of who I want to be in the world as an artist and as an educator. And that's just another layer of coming out. And and we will all, no matter who we are and what we look like and how we identify and what our sexualities are, we will all continue to come out for the rest of our lives in various ways. And it's, it's always your choice. Um, I mean, it should be, it should be always your choice when and how you come out. Yeah. And, um, and if that's around being honest, telling someone how you really feel, having a tough conversation, um, disappointing someone, not being who somebody expects you to be and instead showing them who you really are. Um, the act of coming out, it happens all the time in big and small ways. And the beauty of having a long-term relationship with one person is that you come out to each other over and over again until it, you see so many layers of, of that other person and you know their identity so well. And this happens you know, with an intimate partner or with family or with friends over the course of your life. You come out to each other more and more every day. And I really feel that that act of coming out, um, it creates a bridge. It it says, if if I can come out, then you can come out. Then you can be more honest about how you feel. Then you can be more vulnerable about who you are. And we can meet in the middle. And maybe we have differences and we can work them out. 
So I really feel empowered by that shift for me in my life was a really big shift in terms of finding my voice, owning my voice, owning my body, owning my value system, owning who I am in the world and who I want to be at every moment. And I would encourage everyone, gay, straight, bi, pans, trans, anything in between to keep coming out in your life in in any way to keep coming out in terms of your secret hobby for making small trains or your um secret love of barbara streisand which that's a personal one for me (laughs) um or or your fear of death or your fear of being alone Mm. um and what you find when you come out is that those internal fears and those things that have been shamed and those feelings of isolation dissolve and you realize everyone everyone has to come out too every we're all we're all we're all in the closet in different ways and we're all constantly trying to come out to each other thank you thank you so it's really interesting, especially when you think about like, you know, taking the power to, you know, be authentic, to be true to yourself, to not um, just kind of ping off with some of the things you were saying uh, just now, uh, not being able to like hide yourself for the benefit of others. I think it's some of the themes you were talking about um, kind of that st- stood out to me, um, you know. When we're in interactions, it's like many times we feel the need to please the person or, you know, kind of appease them, be like just cater to them rather than being authentic to ourselves and giving an authentic response and and witnessing or testifying to the experience we're having so that then they can listen. It also empowers them and then testifying to our experience and testifying to our um, our our truth. uh, We're also allowing others to do the same you know we're allowing them so that then it doesn't become a group think or a hive mind we prevent that hive mind or echo chamber by being authentic to ourselves and be authentic to our own voice we encourage others to think the same and in that vein i want to jump off into as we start to wind down what you hope um others will gain from your teachings and also thinking about the process uh of what experiences um, have helped you to kind of, in your teaching, I mean, this is focused on the teaching right now, when you teach others, um, what experience do you think helps people to really get get to that point where you need them to be at, you know, where they need to be at? Uh, you know what I'm saying? In other words, like, what's, what are some powerful teaching techniques that hmm. help people get to where they need to, to be? Yeah. Well... Um, what I find, what I really enjoy about the Alexander technique and the the training that I had, I trained with, um, Debbie Adams, um, in the Boston, at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. Um, that's where I did my teacher training. And one thing I find really powerful about Alexander technique and why I teach it, um, that I gleaned from her and from Tommy Thompson, who works at the Alexander Technique Center at Cambridge, is that the individual is very much at the center. 
And Tommy, Tommy Thompson, when he, we do some hands-on work. Currently I'm teaching everything online. Um, so it's different to not have that contact. And also what I talked about earlier, being able to feel and see someone's full, full self in their body in the same room and the energies we share when we're in person together. Um, but traditionally Alexander technique involves hands-on practice. And Tommy says something like, when you put your hands on someone, what, what you see and what you know of them is like you're standing on the edge of, of the ocean on the beach. And you're standing on the beach and you're looking out at the ocean. And that's how much you see of the ocean when you put your hands on, on someone that you're working with, a student. And the student their consciousness, their awareness of themselves is the surface of the ocean. So it extends much further than you can see. It's all across the whole surface of the ocean, the top layer of the ocean. That's, that's their knowledge. That's their idea of themselves. That's their identity. That's their conscious, conscious self. And then what neither of you know for sure and will ever really fully see is their whole self, which is the whole ocean from the top to the bottom, all of that depth, all of those creatures, all of those mysteries, um, all of those temperatures and currents. And you're putting your hands in an already moving river or already moving tide. Um, there's, there's stuff that's moving that's going on that you'll never know about. So therefore proceed with a, a tremendous amount of empathy and compassion and care and listening. So, when I work with students, it's all about playing with, I suppose, what, how those three levels, of the ocean interact, my, my perception, what I see, um, what they see and what they feel and what they know and what they're experiencing, and then what's going on underneath that neither of us see and know and experience. And all three of those levels of being are working together. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, three is an arbitrary number, but... Um, all of those levels of being are interacting. So to know that you only know 1% of, of the situation, you only ever know 1% of, of the experience. And even if the student tries to translate their embodied experience to me in words, um, I can't, I, I can't 100% glean what exactly it is they mean. They might, might not even be able to find words for it. And, um, that might be very different from what I'm seeing and experiencing. So, so knowing that, being able to be with that, being able to be with the individual and be present with the beauty of how much we don't know is really at the heart of my teaching. And all I can do is, is be with the person and we can discover tools that feel like they are supporting them that feel like they are empowered um, in that moment. And that might change over time. And uh, it's not about taking anything away that we notice. And it's certainly not about what I see or what, I, what appears to me as better posture or what's right or what's wrong. It's all about what to you right now feels empowering, feels grounding. Um, and that might be your contact with the floor. And that might be your relationship to the sound around you. 
And that might be having something, a small object in your hand or in your pocket. Um, and then we work on, on that in relationship to your everyday life. So maybe it's um, for my eyes, setting up my office space where I have three-dimensional things like plants and mobiles around my space so that they're really waking me up or finding fabrics that um, are really stimulating and bringing me back to myself or knowing that I always have the choice to close my eyes, that my eyes are boundaries. Um, my eyes are doors, um, they're boundaries and I can open and close them at any point. Um, so it's really individually geared towards whoever the student is in front of me in that given moment, mm. knowing that that will change and evolve over time. Yeah. Thank um, you. So in terms of if I were to make any general broad suggestions to the public and in, in terms of how to improve yourself or how to be more embodied or feel more empowered, the first thing I would say is notice where your life is. Notice where you're locating that. Is it outside of you or is it here right now in you? Mm. And notice um, what your habits are in terms of what you relate to and how those things make you feel. So if I spend time in relationship to my ukulele, that's gonna change my perception of myself versus if I spend time in relationship to my screen and various different people in my life. And that I have a choice around how much emphasis I put on each relationship. So it could be that at some times I need to de-emphasize my relationship to my task at hand, my homework or my job and I need to just take a few minutes to just notice myself, not in relationship to what I have to do, not in relationship to my responsibility, not in relationship to my identity, but just in relationship to the sky. Because there is nothing to do with the sky. Thank I have a, a song, a song lyric that says, you have nothing to do with the sky, um, which is a little punny. Um, and just being with, with that relationship can give me a different sense of myself. Here yeah. on the planet. Thank you, thank you. So you're listening to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, you're listening to support radio. If you'd like to listen to our feed when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our mobile apps uh, for iPhone or Android, available in App Store, their respective app stores. Um, if you'd like to get our monthly newsletter, go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Uh, COVID-19, of course, is still disrupting everyone's lives right now. And we're here for Brooklyn, no exception. We sent, uh, we want you to know that we're doing everything in our power to ensure the health and well-being of our staff and the community at large. We closed, uh, right now we're starting to integrate in um, the studio use again, but for now, many of our hosts are continuing to bring you new original programming broadcasting live from their homes, as we're doing right now. Uh, or selecting the best pre-records or, or rebroadcasts in their past shows. With uh, most of our revenue stream evaporated, we need your help. We realize you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it would go a long way towards helping us to stay on the air. Here are three ways you can help. First, you can uh, make a one-time donation or monthly pledge. 
by going to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Then you can find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that we'd like to send you as a thank you. Then second, you can go to your phone to text RPGIVE5 uh, to 44321. It only takes a moment, but you'll be able to use your digital law for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you go to Amazon.com slash smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as a nonprofit we support. When you do your percentage of your sales, will go to RFB and it'll cost you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will take a huge difference. Uh, we wish to thank you for bottom of our hearts and wish you all the listeners health and happiness as we weather the storm together. So, um, yeah, as we were discussing, as we start to close off the last few minutes, why don't you tell the audience where we can follow you, where we can, uh, where, what websites and things like that, and, and where we can follow your information, yeah. Great. Um, so my my personal my website as an actor um, and a performer is is my name uh, www.hollycinnamon.com and that's holly like the berry and cinnamon like the spice c i n n a m o n um, and uh, I'm also on Instagram at holly.cinnamon uh, and then my teaching business is called Teaching Presence. And that's at www.teachingpresence.com. Um, and my Instagram for that is at teaching underscore presence. But if you simply remember one of those four things, they will all lead you back to each other because that's what technology does nowadays. Um, and I'm also on Facebook at Holly Cinnamon Actor and at Teaching Presence. Um, please, if, if you heard anything you're interested in or and you want to take a, a lesson i'm teaching online classes right now so i'm teaching one-on-one -on -one coachings i coach actors musicians the general public i um i'm teaching group classes i'm teaching a class on our eyes and 3d seeing uh because of our increased screen time i'm going to be releasing a new schedule for august that includes setting up your home office space ergonomically and a class on trauma in the digital age and how trauma happens through the screen and how to recognize a trauma response and how to discharge that trauma response through movement. So uh, check it out. Come sign up. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Truth to Power show. We are every Monday at 8 a.m. So uh, hopefully you'll all join us next week. If you're listening at Thursday at 9 a.m., that's our rebroadcast time. So thanks so much. We have about 30 seconds left. Uh, also, uh, I think you were on you were on the Marvel show Daredevil, so people should definitely check yeah, out. Yeah, check out yeah. check out Daredevil season three. I played Julie Barnes in five episodes. Cool, cool. So. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me. It Thank was really you. lovely talking to you today. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs> bye everyone. Thanks for listening.